Back in 1999, there was this iconic film, and it changed the way that film was done in a lot of respects, and it was The Matrix, and wild cinematography never seen before, sort of technology was incorporated. Uh, there was a, it, was a, it kind of opened up a new way of looking at the genre of action film because there was these, these really interesting sort of philosophical things thrown into this kind of action movie where you're in a dystopian world and everything that you see is a fabrication created by the powers that be and, uh, and, and so you're stuck in this matrix and, and um, you, you know, it's the, the, the fabrication of this world that you understand is disguising really what's, what's going on and there's this, there's this you know, meme-worthy scene where uh, Morpheus, one of the main characters, sits down in front of Neo and he holds out two pills, the blue pill, the blue pill and the red pill, and he says, like, you can take the blue pill and go back to just understanding everything the way that you presently understand it, or you can take the red pill, which is going to open up your eyes to the way that things truly are, but you're going to have to grapple with things, because it's not going to be an easy transition. Our text this morning is Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is like taking the red pill as you're working through the book of Romans, because the Apostle Paul begins to open up these huge and glorious and amazing attributes of God, of his love, his grace, his sovereignty, that makes us humans just kind of sit down and pause and be like, okay, this is really changing the way that I um, um, I'm thinking and, and, and understanding. We've been working through Romans before Christmas, chapter by chapter, and we're just going to continue that um, now this morning with Romans 9. And I call it the red pill because we're, we're very, very familiar with what it looks like when we exercise our will. We're very, very familiar and comfortable with what it feels like to execute our free will. And then you come to Romans 9, and Paul asks the question, what does it look like when God exercises his free will? And we're like, don't really want to kind of think about that idea, because we're just very used to operating day in and day out according to our will. And Paul raises this question, what about God's free will? And what does God do with his free will? We're very, very comfortable projecting our ideas onto a God we create. But what do we do with the God that we didn't create? We're very, very comfortable with notions of God that we can wrap our minds around and control. What do we do with a God we can't control? And these are the huge things that Paul invites us to grapple with in Romans chapter 9. For the first eight chapters, and there's a reason why he does this, it's not just a shock and awe. Because for the first eight chapters leading up to Romans 9, Paul's been building a huge thesis. And his, his thesis is that God saves sinners. And that's hugely offensive because if you use your grace to save people that don't deserve it, that defies logic. So Paul has been systematically building a case for this great God of grace who saves those who do not deserve it. And as it's building, by the time you get to Romans 8, the confidence in God's saving grace crescendos to scandalous levels. By the time you get to the end of chapter 8, Paul has said things like, there is no angel, demon, height, depth, nothing can separate you from the love of God, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. There, I am fully confident, fully persuaded of this. Paul is talking with such rock-solid certainty, and any of you academics in here who've had to write a thesis, you know that when you're writing a thesis, you have to anticipate the arguments. So we get to chapter 9, which we're about to read, and Paul's like, I've said so much about God's scandalous saving grace, 
I have said so much about my certainty that no, no devil in hell can separate us from the love of Christ, that once you're in Christ's grip, nothing can change that. Now it's time for me to anticipate the arguments to this thesis. Well, what about Israel? Lots of them didn't believe in Jesus. What about the people, that is, what about the people who don't place their faith in Christ? Is God's power failing? Is God's promise failing? How come 100% of the people didn't uh, place their faith in Jesus? Paul, we've got this letter in Rome, and we seem to see there's Greeks and Romans and Jews in our church here in 57 AD. Not a great time to be a Christian. And there's lots of people that aren't Christians. So why doesn't God just dole out this amazing, scandalous grace on everybody? See, he's anticipating all of these arguments coming Maybe God's unjust. Maybe God's not fair. Maybe he's a cosmic killjoy. Maybe he's a cosmic ogre. Paul is anticipating all of these arguments. And so that's why he says, okay, we're going to deal with these arguments and we're going to look at what it is that God does with his free will and he uses his free will to save sinners in sovereign grace and he invites the church to sit humbled and liberated by this. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read to verse 24 and then 30 to 33. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself could be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenant, the receiving of the law, the temple, the worship, and the provinces, uh, promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all and forever praised. Amen. It's not as though God's word has failed, for not all who descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the, appoint, at the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. And yet before those twins were even born, before they had done anything good or bad, in order that God's promise in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older is going to serve the younger. And just as it was written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And one of you will say to me, well, then why does God blame us? For who's able to resist his will? But who are you, O human, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object, with the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this? 
to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained righteousness. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. See, I lay a stone in Zion that causes people to stumble and a rock of offense. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. This is God's word. So in this passage, Paul expounds on the reality of salvation being a result of God's sovereign grace. On the Damascus Road, while he was rejecting Jesus, not seeking Jesus, persecuting people who believed in Jesus, he was saved by the scandalous sovereign grace of Jesus. So he, has a pers- he is personally acquainted with this saving grace of God. And so as he looks and reflects on history, not just personally, but historically on God's sovereignty, you know, Paul's response was not to throw his hands up and go, well, you know, I mean, hey, God's sovereign, so there's no need to do mission or share the gospel uh, because it doesn't matter because God saves in sovereign grace. Actually, Paul understood sovereign grace and he did the opposite. He gave his entire life for sharing the gospel. The church spread throughout the, the ancient world aggressively, passionately, boldly, humbly sharing this gospel precisely because they were blown away by sovereign grace. Understanding this of God's sovereignty, it doesn't hinder the mission of the church. It actually propelled the mission of that, of that church, and it will propel the mission of this church. We're going to look at three aspects of this teaching this morning, though there's scores of things we could look at. The first thing we're going to look at is the wonder of God's sovereignty and the reality of human responsibility. The second thing we're going to look at is that mercy and grace are not rights that we can demand from God. They are gifts that are granted by God. And the third thing we're going to look at is that trusting in God's sovereign grace mobilized the early church, and it's going to mobilize this church. So let's look at the first thing here. The wonder of God's sovereignty and the reality of human responsibility. You've heard me quote Dr. Michael Allen many times. He's the professor of... uh, of systematic theology at Knox, and when he was talking to us about God's sovereignty, he said, you know, most of us think about God's sovereignty like a chair, and if God is sitting in the chair of sovereignty, then I have no responsibility, and I have no free will, and I can't make any choices. People think about it that way, but if I'm sitting in the chair, and now I have free will, and I can make choices, now somehow God's not sovereign. He says, it's not like that. The Bible is constantly holding in tension God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And so think about Jesus. Jesus comes, and what is Jesus doing? Constantly calling people to repentance. Turn from your ways. Believe in me. Turn from your ways. Trust in me. Turn from the things that you think is saving you. Trust in me. I will save you. What is Jesus doing? He's calling for personal responsibility. He's calling for a response. He's calling for human action. He's calling for human action, and yet while at the same time being, being God who is sovereign. And so let's take a look at the letter of Romans here, this letter of Romans, this thesis that, that, that Paul is making, that, that uh, God is saving sinners by grace alone. And so he's anticipating all the pushback. He's anticipating the pushback that they're going to say, well, how can this be? Now, if Paul wrote, hey, hey, let me just tell you right now, here's how you're saved. You make a choice. Well, then you could just skip from Romans 8 
and to Romans 12 and just bypass three chapters of him dealing with this thesis. Three, three, three chapters of argument. Paul could just said, no, who would argue that? Nobody. Oh, you're saved because you choose. There, make a choice. And Romans 8 and just begin at, therefore, let's be renewed by our minds and move on. But that's not what Paul does. So what is going on? What can we learn here? Verses 7 and 8 teach us that salvation is not a result of your ethnicity or your family background or your moral achievement. It's grace. And Paul says, you know, let's define, let's define the people of God properly. It's not one nation, it's every nation. It's Israel and every other nation. It's not physical descendants, it's spiritual descendants. When you look at verses 9 to 13, he pulls out these examples. He's like, let me build a thesis on God's sovereignty. And he goes back to Isaac and Ishmael, and he goes to um, uh, Jacob and Esau, these two nations. And some people who want to take the blue pill, and they're like, ah, I don't want to think about God being sovereign. Just let me live in the idea that I just make my choices and live my life. And they take the blue pill. They say, well, this is just about nations. It's not about people. Except that these, Paul goes specifically goes to people. And he goes to Jacob and Esau. And he says, you know, they didn't do anything. Those little twins, they didn't do anything good or they didn't do anything bad. It's just God's grace or what he does. God graciously chooses. The Greek word for election, which is in your notes there, it comes from, it, the word is ekologē, comes from two words, ek and lego. That's right, kids. Lego. So I'll, I'll tell you what lego is in Greek in a minute. But ek means to be, to be from something to something. That's ek. From to ek. Lego is a Danish interlocking brick system. Just kidding. It is. But lego... It means um, to speak with such conviction that you, it, it's, it ends an argument. It's definitive, right? Logos means word. Lego is to speak with such conviction. It's definitive. That's what it means. So, so Paul uses the word here in Greek, ek lego. He says God elects. God goes from here to here for a definitive certain purpose. That's what God does. Right? That's, that's the original language. It's, it's strong and it's to point to what, what does God do with his free will? He gives grace to people that don't deserve it. Those are the recipients of his grace. This is what God has chosen to do because he's loving and merciful. In verse 13, it says that he loved Jacob, Jacob but he hated Esau. And in English, that means hate is like this aggressive, uh, negative emotions. That's not what this means here. Because Jesus said, if you're going to love me, you have to hate your mother and father and follow me. Jesus said that. So the hate, the way that it's being used here in this text, and as Jesus used it, it means to, to prefer and to give priority to. So God, sovereign grace, gives priority and preference to Jacob. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to give priority and preference to me over your mother and your father and your sister and your brother. And so we get this picture. But what's the point of all this? The point of it is Paul wants the church in Rome, and this church by extension, to sit in awe and wonder and humility of why we're here. We're not here because we're superior, and the people who aren't in church this morning aren't inferior. We're here by sovereign grace. We're here by, by God's uh, great love. And so what did Paul do with this understanding? What did the early church do with this understanding? What did they do? They didn't sit around and sing kumbaya and go, let's just hang out in our churches because we're justified and God sovereignly chose us and if he wants to save somebody, he'll do it. That's not what they did. They exploded with great joy into the streets just out of the r radical understanding that 
they're recipients of God's goodness and love, and they want to share that message that others would come to be recipients of God's goodness and love. And the modern mind looks at this, and no doubt, even as I've started this, some of you, maybe some of you even got here and looked down at the notes and said, oh boy. The modern mind looks at texts like this and every other text that grapples with God's sovereignty, and and all we can think is, what does this say about my free will? What does this say about my free will? The preacher is preaching Romans now, what does this say about my free will? You're so vain. You probably think this Greek is about you. It's, this text is not about our free will. This text is about marveling at what God chose to do with his free will. You're all here today because you chose to be here. And there's another reason you're here. Now, this is the point. And as I'm even unpacking this before I move to the second point, some of you might be thinking, yeah, well, nice try, preacher. Because if God is free, then I am not, so clearly I can't choose the one in front of me. But Paul knew you would say that in 57 AD, which is why I'm going to take you to the next portion of the scripture, so clearly I cannot choose the one in front of you. So the second point, did you follow that? Is mercy and grace are not rights that can, we can demand from God. Mercy and grace are gifts that are granted by God. God's sovereign will doesn't negate our responsibility for exerting our will. God's sovereign will interacts with our responsibility for exerting our will. It, the, the scripture has always held these two things together. It's not a contradiction. Is light a wave or a particle? The answer is yes. It's not a contradiction. These things live in this glorious mystery. Unless you're a physicist, then maybe it's not a mystery for you because I'm going to stand my lane as a theologian and just call it this glorious convergence of two truths. Right? And so what Paul does is Paul moves to give another example to talk about God's sovereignty. And he goes to Moses and Pharaoh. You find that in verses 14 to 18. Now, if you, read, if you do research, if you go home from, from church today and you're like, man, the red pill was too much. I got to do some research to make sure this guy's not, not, you know, making stuff up. You go back and read Exodus, Moses and Pharaoh, read it, and you're going to find the text says two things. It says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and the text says, Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. It says both of those things. Now, here's why this is important. Because God's judgment, Paul said in Romans 1, God's judgment is giving you over to what you want. God's judgment, what does God's judgment look like in the world today in 2020? It looks like giving us over to what we most want. When God pronounces judgment, he just removes his hand and he lets us double down on our convictions. That's what he does. That's Romans 1. Now, let's take Paul's definition, that's his definition, by the way, of judgment, and let's plug it into Paul's example because he's giving us Moses and Pharaoh so let's just roll with this thesis here. And what do we find? Here's what we find. We find that Pharaoh put the Hebrews in slavery by his own free will. And then, Her- and then Pharaoh was killing their babies so that they couldn't you know, amass a huge population and revolt against him. So Pharaoh did that by his own free will. And then God sent 10 plagues systematically attacking 10 Egyptian gods to demonstrate he was the true God, and Pharaoh rejected God ten times. 
And so Pharaoh hardened his heart and rejected God, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart by giving him over to what he wanted. Because what Pharaoh wanted, what Pharaoh was already committed to, was to reject God's divine rule and live according to his rule. There's a few theologians that speak to this, and I've given them to you in your notes here. Uh, Tim Keller in his commentary says, when God hardens, he doesn't create hardness toward him. He allows us to continue in our hardness toward him, and he gives us over to our commitment to hardness toward him. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, the world fell into sin, but God put a limit, a restraint on it, and this world would be in complete chaos and hell if God didn't do so. But the moment that God draws back his restraining influence, there's a hardening. So the way that God produces the hardening is to leave us to ourselves. And John Stott says it this way, if anybody is lost, the blame is theirs, and if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. So mercy and grace are not rights that we can demand. We can't look at God and go, well, you're unjust. You have to give grace to everybody. You can't have justice and judgment. You have to. Let's think about mercy and justice. Let's unpack this for a minute. Because what Paul says when he says, hey, Clay, meet Potter, is he's not saying, don't think about it. He's saying, think about it. When he says, who are you? You're made of dirt. You know you're going back there, right? He's not saying, don't think about it. Christian faith is for checking your brains at the door. Don't think about it. He's the potter, you're the clay. That's not what he's doing. Don't give Paul credit. This guy's a, this guy's a genius of the law. This guy is an academic. He's saying, think about it. If there's a creator of the cosmos, does it make sense that the creation holds the creator in judgment? Or does it make sense that the creator holds the creation in judgment? Which is more logical? Which stands to more reason? So let's think about mercy and justice mercy and, and, and justice. There is mercy and justice, but there's never injustice in God. So let's kind of unpack this. If somebody has hurt you, if you're here today and somebody has abused you, somebody has abandoned you, wronged you, rejected you, they can't demand your forgiveness. They can't demand your grace. You don't owe them forgiveness and grace. You grant them forgiveness and grace. And because, you know, speaking to Christians, the gospel has liberated our hearts and we know that what we have been forgiven of, the scriptures call us to give what is not deserved and give forgiveness and grace. But they, the one who's done the infraction can't demand that. If, uh, if you go out for lunch... And you notice that the person at the table next to you says, Oh my goodness, I forgot my wallet. Oh no, me too. You can lean over and say, Hey, you know what? Just give me your bill. It's fine. I'll take it. You guys go have a good day. When I'll, I'll pay for it. You can do that. That's mercy. If you don't do anything and they have to go and do dishes as judgment, that's justice. You haven't committed injustice. And if somebody flips the tables and goes, what? How dare you buy their lunch? You've got to buy all our lunch. 
All of us in here. Free lunch. What? What planet do you live on? How is that injustice? The service is over and you go home and you're grappling with the red pill. Oh, Romans 9. Whoa, God's sovereignty and his sovereign saving grace. And you stop at the light, but it's icy out there. And somebody stumps, oh, they slow. And they, boom, they love tap your bumper. They scratch your paint. They break your taillight. You can let them drive away. You can go out and say, you know what? It was icy out today. That was definitely your fault. You definitely owe me. Um, but you know what? Just have a good day. You can let them drive away. That's mercy. You can look at that and go, ooh, that, look, that, that scratch looks like it's about four inches. And my experience with body work is that's going to be $18,000. <laughs> so we're going to have to call the police. That's justice. If you pull out your phone and start calling the police, they can't yell and say, the injustice. God only deals in mercy and justice. There's no injustice. One more, just to bang home the red pill here. Because the worst thing he can do is take the blue pill. No, God's not sovereign. God doesn't save in sovereign grace. It's us and our free will and our choice. You have just abandoned a three-chapter thesis that he's unpacking the arguments. So don't do it. Sit in the gravity of this because it'll liberate you. Julie Payette is the Governor General of Canada. And she has the authority to grant pardons. She can wipe out your criminal record. You can make an appeal to Miss Payette and she can wipe it out. And she... And she gets applications, and she does. But if she wipes out somebody's criminal record, she's not obligated to empty the prisons. Because if she has the authority to wipe out the record, that's mercy. And if she looks at the application and says, not this one, that's justice. Because they're guilty. There's no injustice. Romans 9 is dealing with a radical God who's up to one thing, saving sinners by grace, who's all of us, giving people lavish forgiveness and grace and renewal who do not deserve it. That's what he's up to. On what basis can he do that? His sovereignty. And how did he do that? Through Jesus Christ who came. He came in Jesus Christ our God, and he paid the price. He absorbed all the cost. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He died on a cross. And so he's done this for us. And so this mercy and grace, these are things that we cannot demand of God. These are things that are granted by God. And so let's take this to um, the third thing this morning, which is trusting in God's sovereign grace. You know, it mobilized that early church. It didn't cripple them. The idea of God's sovereignty didn't cripple Paul. It was like fuel. It didn't cripple the early church. It was like fuel. And it won't cripple the church. It's like fuel. For us to go and to humbly and aggressively share the gospel. Before, uh, after I um, graduated high school, the first job I got I involved a number of things. And one of them was I would ride on a forklift and load trailers and go and, and install these uh, pasture mats in barns in southern Ontario but when I was loading the trailers you'd have to put the bulk of the weight over the axles these weren't big transport trucks these were like pickup trucks and vans with trailers so you got to put the weight over the axles and so what Paul is doing by expounding the glory of God's sovereign saving grace is he puts the weight where the weight belongs 
on evangelism and mission, and he puts it on God. He puts the weight of salvation not on your nervous shoulders, not on my nervous shoulders, not on, not on our collectively insufficient shoulders. He puts the weight and the responsibility of salvation on Christ's preeminent shoulders. And then he calls us to go out and to, as recipients of grace to be messengers of this grace. And so when our hearts grasp it, you see, church, when you grasp this, you will not be intimidated. You will not be fixated on whether you're going to say the right words and formulate everything properly and have all the correct arguments and have, you know, have your thesis down before you share the gospel. You're not going to be intimidated. You're not going to be on the, well, I'm just going to be friends with them for 50 years plan, and maybe if Jesus comes up, I'll share the gospel. That's the slow plan. Like, that's not, was not the early church gospel sharing plan. There was a boldness and a conviction. They're like, we're not crazy people. We don't believe in fairies. 500 of us saw the resurrected Christ at one time. We're sharing this message. And then God in sovereign grace moves through his church. You will not be crippled by it. But I'll tell you, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God's grace, you're constantly going to be second-guessing your ability to do missions and to share the gospel because the pressure and the weight is not going to be over the axles of Christ's shoulders. It's going to be on you. And then you're going to look in the mirror and be like, I don't know if I'm really the kind of person that can share about the goodness of the hope and the rest that I found in Christ. And so it actually will liberate us. We will do what the early church did. Verse 33 says, as I prepare to close this morning, it says, those who trust in Christ's grace, of course, get the grace. I lay a stone in Zion, that's the city of God, that causes people to stumble in a rock of offense, but the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus is this rock. He's, he's either the foundation stone of your life, or he's a stumbling stone. You're either going to build your life on him, or you're going to be offended at the notion that you need him. And so those who thought that they could be made righteous by their works, they were offended by Jesus and they rejected his grace. And those who weren't even looking for Jesus, God chose to save by his sovereign grace. And this should give us great confidence, Redeemer, because we don't live in a city full of tens of thousands of people who are looking for Jesus. They're like Paul. They're on the Damascus Road doing their thing, going in the opposite direction. Thank God for his sovereign grace. And that you and I now are sent as, his, as recipients of that grace to share his goodness uh, in this city. So if you're here today and you've been exploring and considering Christian faith, but you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, you're here today because, of course, you exercised your own free will. And you're here. You know, but you're also here because God, in his great love for you, authored about 10,000 things to happen in your life to ensure that you are here today to hear this message of his great love and saving grace for you. You're here because of your free will, and you're also here today because of God exercising his free will. And his free will looks like giving his love and grace to those who don't deserve it. And I would invite you this morning to turn to Jesus, to place your faith and your trust in him because he lived the perfect life that we cannot live and will never live. He died an atoning death to take away our sin and he rose again on the third day, giving us the confidence that the story of the end of your life is not death and darkness. 
Because without Jesus, that's the trajectory. I'm not being morbid, I'm just being a rational person. Cemeteries exist. But the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope that the end is not darkness and death. It is life and it is light in God. It is the restoration of the world that we wish we lived in that is evading us. It is the restoration of the life that we wish that we were enjoying that seems to be evading us. It is the peace without horizon. It is the joy that knows no end. And it is a certainty and assurance and a confidence that you can enjoy day after day after day as you live in the glory of God's grace. And I would invite you to respond to that. In church, may we go and may we do what the early church did, live our lives in the certainty and the rest of God's grace, raise our children to know and enjoy the certainty and the love of God's grace, and go out and be messengers of the goodness of his grace. For the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Amen.